Hey everybody, before we get into the show, I wanted to let you know we've got another live show coming up. We will be back at Maya Cinemas on Thursday, May 23rd for Furiosa, the latest in the Mad Max series. We are so excited for this one. Joining me to talk about it, we've got Sam Novak, Shahab Zargari, and Tony Gonzalez. A great lineup. It's going to be an awesome movie. We are so excited to talk about it. So make sure to check the show notes. There are opportunities to win tickets. You could also buy tickets. And we hope to see you there Thursday, May 23rd, 6 p.m. at Maya Cinemas for Furiosa. All right, welcome to another episode of Piecing It Together, the podcast where we take a look at a new movie and try to figure out what movies inspired it. And today on the show, we're doing something that we have never done before, and that is look at a book instead of a movie. We are looking at screenwriter Charlie Kaufman's new book, Ant Kind. It's his first novel. And those of you who have listened to the show before probably know that I am a big Charlie Kaufman fan. Adaptation is my favorite movie. And if I was to sit here and make a list of my top 10 or 20 films, pretty much the rest of the films he has written exist somewhere in my top list of my favorite movies. So I'm a pretty big fan. And so when this book came about, I knew that I probably would end up wanting to do an episode on it, even though it's not a movie. And, you know, it's a story and there's plenty of inspiration to be found within it. And joining me for a great, very long conversation is returning co-host Chris Cranock. He's a filmmaker. He's been on the show a bunch of times, but he hasn't been on since before all of this uh, pandemic and shutdown and coronavirus and all that stuff. So it was great to have him back on. And, you know, I'm not a very big reader, so I was really happy to have Chris on because he has read a lot of the books that most likely did inspire Charlie Kaufman a little bit in the making of this one. Uh, Because for me, I can only really look at movies for the most part because... I am not a big reader. We all have our shortcomings. Me, I can't keep an attention span for more than a couple of hours at a time at absolute most. And even then, I can barely get to an hour of reading at a time. So for me, reading is like a freaking chore. But I did my best. And because it is Charlie Kaufman, I was able to get through this thing, all 700 plus pages of it. And so... I am looking forward to this conversation. It is a long one. It's a long book, and there's a lot of things being explored, and so there was a lot to talk about, and I really didn't want to edit it down. I could have, but I felt like it all needed to be in here. So, you know, if you haven't read the book yet, I do encourage you to. Charlie Kaufman has such a hard time getting things made in this world, and I want it to be a success, so he'll get to make more things and of course he's got his netflix movie i'm thinking of ending things which is coming out next month i i want him to get to make more movies write more books so go read this book and then strap in for a long conversation we've got a lot to say as always i want to remind you to make sure to subscribe to piecing it together wherever you listen to podcasts you can rate and review us on apple Podcasts or Podchaser, and follow us on social media at piecing pod so, without any further ado, let's get into this conversation about Ant Kind. 
Chris Cranock, you are finally back on the show, and we have a lot to talk about, my friend. Yeah, I know everyone missed me so much. You were getting letters of outrage. You should have seen them all. I, yeah, I, I had to, uh, I, I had to make a separate folder just to keep it all clear and everything yeah, between uh, all my Amazon purchases that I make while I'm sitting here in my house. Uh, how, how have you been, buddy? Well, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, I. It's a it's a crazy time, and uh, as you're learning quickly, that I'm not as uh, technologically savvy as you'd imagine. I can run cameras. Yeah, th- this whole conversation is held up by the fact that you still use Safari. What's going yeah, on here? That's buddy? pretty oh, deep. Yeah. That's that's a horrible thing you've just done. Release that to the world. <laughs> no, the thing is, I I can run a camera uh, of pretty intense sophistication, but with computers, since I don't I don't know, I have never learn them you know because i have editors i yeah. work with that have the really good the good stuff that we need to make the films and for me i use like the oldest laptop imaginable and and also just the just a funny tidbit the keyboard on my laptop broke so i plugged in mm-hmm. a separate keyboard so now i just lug nice. around a keyboard and a laptop defeating the purpose that's of the crafty. laptop that's me constantly yeah. I have like 30 like wires it. hooked up right now because all the batteries don't last anymore because it's a 40-year-old computer. So that's me. You know that's what, how Chris, I'm doing. You, you, you are a problem solver. That's what you are. My yeah, friend. for sure. Um, I'm the MacGyver <laughs> of uh, technological inadequacy, for sure. So I, I do want to bring up one thing before we uh, get onto the subject at hand, which is, of course, Charlie Kaufman's debut novel, Ant Kind. But uh, I do want to mention that just as the quarantine started and all mm-hmm. this craziness with coronavirus, you and I were supposed to record an episode on King Kong after its, uh, what was it, 70th anniversary or some. Oh, sometime. that's right. I yes. don't remember. Yeah, but uh, I do hope to eventually get back to that one of these days, I just wanted to say. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I still have my notes and I, I got oh, my yeah. puzzle pieces, so <laughs> it's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I can't wait. It's one of my, it's one yeah. of the great, you know, for, for, it's like a movie's movie. It's a movie person's movie. Right. You know, it's like you almost have to like it. It's like an, it's an obligation, really. It is. And, and I think it does have a, you know, at least with like the stop motion, we got a little bit of a, a bridge to what we're talking about today with, with uh, Ingo's film within the world of uh, Charlie Kaufman's hand. Yeah. When did you, when did you finish it? Uh, I, I finished it two days ago. Um, so I, I, first of all, this is, this is weird. This is going to be the first time and possibly the only time we ever cover a book here on piecing it together. But, Mm -hmm. uh, listeners of the show know I absolutely am a Charlie Kaufman mega fan. And so it it makes sense that I would want to cover this on the show, do a full fledged episode on it. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know, it, it was a, uh, a huge undertaking for me to read a 700 plus page book. And so I might as well make something of it rather than, (laughs) you know, I, 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 I actually set July uh, on hold. I was like, okay, I'm going to go from... I had been doing like eight or nine episodes a month of this podcast, along with a bunch of other stuff. I was like, I'm going to just go down to four episodes, so that way I could work on my music and a bunch of other projects I have. And then all of a sudden, I'm reading like four hours a day of, of this book, <laughs> taking up my entire life. So I, I definitely wanted to uh, make use of the time that I had put into this thing. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, it was a... It's a pretty big book. It took took me a couple of days. I'm a fast reader. I read a lot, and I, mm. and I appreciate you having me on to do this episode because I think I'm a would be a good fit because I'm a yeah. really uh, avid reader. 
and I and I liked the book. You know, I I, I thought it was it was good. It wasn't great, mm-hmm. but, it was, but it was good. It was it wasn't great literature, but I laughed a lot and right. really you know out loud. It was a very funny book, and so I think uh, what I can bring today is some book puzzle pieces, and yeah. I'm going to make a really hard case for people to read the books I'm going to talk about because I think that they're really good and should be read. So I'm just assuming that they haven't been read. There's probably a lot of people, obviously, who've read these these books, so they can sure. um, they could. Uh, join my fight to get more people to read them because they are sure. truly good, really good. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy that you're going to be bringing that uh, th- that perspective because yeah, I most likely maybe there'll be one or two on your list that I have read, but mm-hmm. I I've read so few books it's it's kind of embarrassing. But it is what it is, and <laughs> hey, I'll be bringing I, I mostly safari. movies. <laughs> okay, I use Safari, so we're all we're all guilty <laughs> in some true. way. Okay. We all have our things. So <laughs> uh, let's jump in because I know this is going to be a pretty long conversation. This is a long book. There's a lot of ideas being explored here. There's a lot to talk about. So let's jump in. What do you got for your first puzzle piece for Ant Kind? All right. So uh, it's a little bit of a three-parter, but I think it's a good place to start. Uh, I'm going to just begin with the work of Kurt Vonnegut, mm-hmm. the great writer and satirist and humorist kind of our modern mark twain who died oh boy almost i think seven years something like that ago it's hard to believe Mm -hmm. that he's been gone so long but he was one of our great you know modern writers someone that we got to walk the earth with is very exciting so the first thing that i had mentioned is a short story actually of his that he wrote uh called harrison bergeron and Harrison Bergeron, this is something you could actually read, David, because it's only like oh. three pages long. Okay, I'm gonna I like sass- the idea of a short story. That's yeah. a great thing. I'm going to sass you a little bit. I'm going to be an elitist <laughs> prick about these books. So just heads up. No, I'm just kidding. I'm, 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 I'm kidding. I'm, I'm just messing with you. Anyway, so uh, Harrison Bergeron's a very short story. It's actually a part of his collection, Welcome to the Monkey House, which is a collection of his short stories. But it was, it was I actually was first introduced to it uh, as a kid in school. An English teacher gave it to me to read. But it's essentially about... Uh, giving everybody that is either physically uh, advanced or mentally advanced some type of handicap so that they become the most average, like we can get everyone to the same playing field. So people that are Mm. lower intelligence have fewer handicaps and people of greater intelligence have more handicaps to kind of even the playing field and make everybody equal. And the the story is about how equality is a dangerous concept. You know, what length do we go for equality? And of course, now it's a very topical issue, which Ant Kind is a much is a very topical book, which more so than I was expecting. And it's yeah. kind of a weird thing to say right now, like the dangers of equality, right? Because we're fighting for equality, and that and that's obviously a basic human right that we need to supply to people around the world and in, in our own country. But at the same time, I think it is bold to talk about the possibility of this being corrupted. This idea. So, how I'm going to sure. tie it to? Ant kind is I feel like he kind of attacked the social climate more than I thought mm-hmm. he was going to. And I think it really was about, I guess, the fear that artists have about equality in the more abstract way, obviously not in like, you know, people have, need to have basic human rights. But what they worry about and what I worry about is the loss of individuality. And sure. that's kind of on the darkest spectrum, I guess, of equality. It's not really where everyone's focus is at the moment, but I guess it is worth discussing. And Kaufman discusses it, and it discusses it, and I think it comes down to from a Harrison Bergeron thing. 
Uh, sure. So great short story. The next one, real quick, is going to be Slaughterhouse Five. Uh, that's Kirk Vonnegut's crowning achievement. His great, great book. Uh, although he wrote many great ones, but because of like time travel and time jumping, and that's a big mm -hmm. part of Slaughterhouse Five. Even though neither book, Ant Kind or Slaughterhouse Five, would be considered sci-fi books, they have this kind of time inconsistency or incongruity, and so that's something. And also, I noticed he actually repeats the phrase. So it goes many times throughout the book, Kaufman does. And this is a phrase mm -hmm. made famous in Slaughterhouse Five. Every time somebody dies uh, in Kirk Vonnegut's book, he writes, So it goes. And that was mm -hmm. actually a phrase that popped up many, I think, five or six times throughout Antkind. So I thought that was interesting. And then the last one from Vonnegut is Breakfast of Champions, which is one of his uh, more kind of zany funny books, not quite the literary achievement of the Slaughterhouse Five. But what uh, Kirk Vonnegut did was write himself into the book as as an mm. as the author of the book, and not only did Kaufman do that with the main character uh, lambasting him constantly, but there totally. was actually a very brief moment where B recognizes that Kaufman might be his creator and his torturer, <laughs> right? And he hates this guy so much, and he might it's because he might be writing him. You know that there's that whole kind of meta quality, which is very Kaufman esque. The 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 um the meta element, but it's right out of Breakfast of Champions and and Vonnegut writing himself into the book. So that's those are the three big pieces of Vonnegut. But just his style, his humor, it's all it, it the satire of it, the social commentary of it. It has Vonnegut written all over it. Yeah, I those those are great ones to start this off. I mean, we're getting into so many of the the themes in this book already. Uh, I do just to briefly go back to the social commentary uh, angle of it. It is crazy that this is something he's been working on for five or six years or even longer than that, and mm -hmm. that it spills so now, so two thousand twenty, in in everything that he's he's talking about, everything with with the. Um, uh, everything with the individuality, everything with politics, everything with with uh, the equality and all that stuff, and it's it's just it's funny that this character, this character B, and this is something that'll come up more and more, but he kind of knows every detail of everything, whether or not he's right or wrong on anything is kind of, <laughs> he's you mainly, know, he, he's mainly mostly wrong. wrong. Yeah. He's mostly wrong, wrong on everything, yeah. but he's so, he's so, uh, he's so in, in tune though, with all of the conversations that are being had at the moment. And, and I just think that that's so, uh, like such a funny entry point into this very nowness, right? You know, ra rather than knowing, knowing it all and being right, knowing it all and being wrong is just such a, a strange direction to take a character is, it's well, very I, I great, very Kaufman. Yeah. I mean, I think it's representative of all of us at this point because we have things like the internet, which make us mm -hmm. feel like we're experts. And we right. lose more and more respect for experts every single day. You know, we were like, oh, you know mm -hmm. what? I'm going to believe Jenny McCarthy about vaccinations. You know, I mean, that's that's yeah. the era we're living in. So, um, so yeah, I think that the B character is really the average human being, maybe you know, more even than the average American, maybe the average person in this world. But yeah, especially the average American, where we're so confident that we know everything. And I, I include myself in this. I try my best to not do this, but sometimes you get carried away or you believe the wrong piece of information. I mean, it's, you know, I'll, I'll cop to it that we all think sure. we're experts 
and uh, we we actually know nothing, or we're, or or our, the privilege that we are kind of saddled with blinds us from a lot of the nuance of issues that we become passionate about, and we want to do the right thing, but we're blind yeah. to a lot of the nuance of it. So it's a confusing time, and I think mostly everybody's wrong constantly. That's kind of yeah. The- I, I think that's absolutely accurate. <laughs> yeah, I've never, I have hardly met per, a person that I was like, yeah, that person knows what's going on. I don't think I, <laughs> I don't think I've run into that in a hot minute. So. <laughs> so, I am going to start with my first puzzle piece, and I just spoiler alert for the way this is going to go. But my first handful of puzzle pieces, which I will do one at a time are going to be Charlie Kaufman-related projects, and not out of laziness, but out of the fact that he really is going back and exploring some of the same themes that he has explored in many of his projects over his the, the, this long career that he's had of very interesting and varied things. And so I'm going to start out going all the way back to some of his TV work in the early 90s, such as Get a Life and The Edge, a sketch comedy show that nobody saw. I think <laughs> Get a Life has a little bit of a cult uh, following. Uh, but this book, you said earlier you were surprised how funny it was, and I was surprised at that as well. You know, obviously, Charlie Kaufman's kind of carved out this niche for, you know, weird, heady movies that certainly are funny, but also explore these big ideas. And there's a lot of that going on in Ant Kind as well. And we'll get to those in future puzzle pieces and some of the ones you've already mentioned. But it's also just very just balls to the wall, wacky comedy at times. I mean, our character B is constantly falling in manholes or person holes, <laughs> as he learns to call them. Uh, weird stuff with talking ants and, you know, just weird creatures. And the book opens up with a scene where these just kind of slack-jawed yokels are <laughs> seeing a weird creature fall from the sky. And so there's just all kinds of weird, goofy, off-the-wall stuff, which is the kind of stuff that he kind of started out with in those early days. I mean, I don't know if you ever watched The Edge, did you? I didn't see The Edge, no. The Edge is one of the strangest... I I was so, like, vindicated when IMDb <laughs> made me realize that, oh my God, Charlie Kaufman was a writer on, like, 20 episodes of this. Like, it was the strangest sketch comedy show. Everything was just so just weird and off the wall. And of course, Get a Life, he only wrote a, you know, a couple episodes, mm-hmm. but still that's where he got his start and that was, you know, the weirdest best yeah, show that ever. That was great. You know? Yeah. No, uh, it sounds like the edge yeah. is something that's really my thing. I want to get into yeah. it. I mean, cuz I love, I mean, this is an outdated phrase, but I love sketch comedy. Like I love like up, sure. Upright Citizens Brigade. I love Kids in the oh, Hall. Yeah. Kids in the Hall was the greatest thing of my life. Like that was a huge influence to me. Those yeah. five Canadian guys. So like I I come from that in terms of like comedy. And so I sure. want to explore the edge. So that's 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 a powerful statement. I want to explore the edge, David. Yeah, <laughs> you're you're gonna get there one of these days, Chris. <laughs> but yeah, no, and and uh, just to kind of finish up that point though, uh, just this book gets so strange. It gets really weird, and I love that about it. it I it it made getting through 700 pages a lot of fun, and I I think that can't be uh, understated enough how weird things get. And if you're into weird, I think you're going to at least find things in this that you enjoy, even if uh, it, it goes on and on and on, but certainly there's a, a reason for it going on and on and on. And I, I think that 
that helps. Yeah, I mean, I think I think I mentioned this to you in passing before as we were both reading it. It, it almost feels like the longness of it is part of the point. Yeah, the kind yeah you know, the the repetition of it is is part of what the book is about. And this is going to be kind of strong language. Uh, but what I was surprised about it is that it was kind of dumb. It was like the dumbest <laughs> thing that he had done. And right. what I mean by that is that it's uh, silly. You know, I mean, it's it, and, and, right. and I mean these are, these are, I have po- these are positive things. Like it has kind of this Buster Keaton, Harold Lloyd, W. C. Fields element to it and i mean especially with like the duos the abbott and costellos you know and you know and the stan and ollies you know i mean and then all that stuff but like that's really but it comes down to like this very broad comedy and yes his other is his other stuff is funny like there are lines in adaptation or being john malkovich in particular that crack me up or i quote to this day but i laughed out loud many times in ant kind like there were Mm -hmm. moments that i really were gut busting hilarious and that was that. It was the, I'm, not, I'm not surprised that he's funny. I'm surprised how funny. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 yeah. I, I wonder how much of, obviously, Charlie Kaufman is somebody who has had so much trouble getting things made over the years in the world of Hollywood and, and filmmaking. And I, I wonder how much of that push and pull with studios has to come down to, you know, his sense of humor and, you know, all, all that weirdness. Well, he's also angry, you know, and he's, yeah. he seems like an angry man. And I don't know him personally, so I don't want to make any judgments about him. But he seems extremely frustrated. <laughs> and again, that's yeah. something that we all are, given the time we're in for the most part. But he uh, he just seems especially angry. And yeah. a lot of that, the coping of anger for creative people is often humor. But there's kind sure. of like this rage to ant kind that... That's kind of a weird thing. I'll, that kind of leads me to a puzzle piece I want to bring up later. So I won't touch on that too much. But there's just kind of like this visceral uh, element to the humor where he's almost just letting himself go. <clears throat> I heard in right. an interview that he what appealed to him about writing a novel was the freedom. Yeah. And, you know, all of us as a filmmaker myself, the thing is, is that we're all dictators that – that like that swallow that element of us because filmmaking is a collaborative process at at every Mm -hmm. stage from a business standpoint from the creative standpoint from a technical standpoint there's a lot of chefs in the kitchen and you have to lead them if you're the creator of the content or the director you have to definitely be the north star but there's a lot of sacrificing and mostly that's a good thing right it's when i try to get people that are better than me to make my projects better you know best idea wins but but there is an appeal about writing poetry let's say i write poetry and it's because no one messes with it i don't have to share it with anybody now is it my best work no the films i collaborate with people are better but the right. poems are mine strictly mine so there is the satisfying quality about it and i sense that in his book i sense that from I, like he was just letting go and being totally yeah. himself and i hope that he got what he wanted out of this you know regardless <laughs> of how it's received by the public and everything i hope that getting to work that way was uh therapeutic for him in a way i guess yeah i think it was i mean i don't know what i'm always so so surprised to learn about someone like him is that it's a lot more you know as it comes than you would think you know i'm a right. i'm a plotter right i plan everything out before i even begin and i know where it's mm-hmm. going and a lot of people that i admire don't work that way 
Charlie Kaufman has kind of figured out this book as he was going and then went back right. and retrofitted certain things. Now, does that does the quality of the book itself suffer from a literary standpoint? Possibly. I think I can make that argument. But I think maybe this was just a therapeutic and cathartic experience for him. And I got a lot of laughs out of it. For sure. So what do you got for your next piece? Well, the kind of sticking on the humor side of it, I wanted to uh, bring up uh, Woody Allen films, I think are probably are deeply in his brain, but uh, specifically Woody Allen's writings, uh, a book in particular called Without Feathers. And there's a great quote, which is, you know, hope is a thing with feathers. And then Woody Allen comes out with a book called Without Feathers. (laughs) So he's this kind of hopeless guy. And the book, uh, that's one of, that's like one of the first books that I read in my young life where I was doubling over in laughter, like without feathers is hilarious sentence to sentence. And so Mm -hmm. I think that, um, that must've entered in, you know, either by osmosis or physically reading it. But I mean, I have a, I have a feeling it has a deep thumbprint on Kaufman's forehead. Uh, just the absolute hilarity and absurdity of it. And what's great about those early uh, Woody Allen films, uh, which have, he became a much better filmmaker as he went on, became a little bit more serious. But what's great about them is their zaniness and their absurdity. He went that like, he was basically a modern Marx Brothers, and I think there's a mm. lot of that in Ant Kind. There's just this like go for the joke, and because because Kaufman doesn't care about reality, you know, in a strictly linear way, you can tr- make it about the comedy in the most like singular way possible when the when the when the confines of the setup don't matter when you can have someone change appearance five seconds after you describe them or they can change time or the elements of the joke can then be mutated to something else it's just about the joke it's just about the the laugh so in a weird way that's what early that's what early woody allen was is there was totally absurd and that's what kaufman did is he just went for the joke in a way that i was surprised by not to be repetitive but like the the framework of surrealism is actually very beneficial to comedy because you don't care about any of the other factors it's just about how can i get to the funniest possible point i think that's why sketch comedy is so great as well yeah you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. Throw in whatever works and you're out in a couple minutes and, you know, it's just joke after joke. And it's like a, pur- a purity yeah. to that kind of comedy when you don't really need the setup to work. You know, it's sure. just like, how do we get to the fastest, funniest, craziest thing? And then that in and of itself is the funny moment. It's not because it's ironic or it's not, be- you know, there's not, oh, that that came back and it connects. Like, no, it's just like the funniest moment in this this very second. And that's, that was full of that yeah. stuff for the book. Yeah. Well, I think that uh without feathers sounds like something I would probably really like. I should I should read that. And then also just one other thing on the surface level, a lot of neurotic chewiness in this book as well. Mm. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Or not chewiness. Yeah, right? not chewiness. There are true. other there's, there's Rosenberg is not only Jewish. <laughs> He's got two Rosens in his name and he's still not Jewish. <laughs> he's still not Jewish. <laughs> So I'll go to my next piece, which continuing along the line here is 1999's Being John Malkovich, uh, which, of course, is, I think, the first time a lot of people, you know, got to know who Charlie Kaufman is and is, you know, to this day, one of the great surreal movies of the last, uh, you know, 20, 30 years. And there, 
as far as connection to ant kind, there is quite literally an entire section where B enters the brain of Donald Trump or Donald mm. Trunk in this case and spends a day with him while he gets a new robotic clone that he gets to uh, spend some time with, let's just say. And <laughs> and uh, but there's also, uh, you know, the themes of escaping to different points of view and like these doppelgangers and then. Uh, also puppets, which, you know, I, I've seen interviews with Charlie where he's saying that, you know, the whole idea of, of the puppets being used again really is not something that he set out for. It's not a theme he's trying to continue in his career. It just was the best way to make a film that some guy could be working on for 90 years by himself. That's three months long. Uh, the, the best way would be for it to be with puppets because otherwise how would nobody else have seen any of the film? Uh, <laughs> I like how he's worried about the logic of it. <laughs> Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> How could it possibly be that there'd be all these people working on it? <laughs> I mean, it makes sense, but you know, That's yeah, it, it just goes to show how much he, about yeah, how much he worries about it. <laughs> <laughs> continuity is very important in a three-month film made over the course of ninety years. Yeah, uh, but yeah, so but anyway, yeah, being John Malkovich uh, that is the next piece from uh, Charlie Kaufman's uh, filmography. Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, it's one of my favorite modern films. You know, it's such a, it's such an ingenious idea and so funny. And I love the story behind it about how you know, no one ever thought it would ever get made. You know, he wrote the craziest script uh, possible on spec so that he could get it out there and get other writing jobs. And it just fell into the hands yeah. of Spike Jones because through Francis Ford Coppola, right? Because he was married, right. you know, at the time into the family and you know, with Sofia Coppola. And it, what a f fantastic story and sending it to John Malkovich and him reading it on a plane, like going to Europe at once and being like, this is insane. Like, oh, why, you know, yeah. you know, and there's so many great, wonderful stories about how that thing came to be and how it made Charlie Kaufman the voice that he is. And yeah, there's so much. I think that I think Ant Kind was definitely him. Charlie, I mean, going back in and looking at his career in in, yeah. in a certain way, you know, and and what's funny is that. The the B character, the main character B, um, is not Charlie, and is Charlie all all at the same time. You know, there's this fantastic, yeah. like you never because he criticizes and compliments a lot of films that you would be un, that are unexpected, right? He's a huge fan of Judd Apatow in the in the book, right? And yeah. he takes an absolute shit on Christopher Nolan, which I enjoy every moment mm. of that. Uh, every second that he talked shit about him, I liked it. I loved every moment of that. Um, I, if I if I remember correctly, I sent you that passage, and then you ordered the book immediately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He he compares Christopher Nolan to Starbucks, and I was like, that, that, and that's the thing is to me, you know, this is totally subjective, right? I have no I have no way of confirming or denying this. But when he criticizes Christopher Nolan, that's Charlie Kaufman, and when he loves right. Judd Apatow, that's B. Rosenberg or right Rosenberg right so um that's up to me I decide when he's Charlie and when he's not but I definitely sure. think that the uh that the book was a way for him to kind of look at the career he's in and the things that he's done already and the 
you know, because I think he's he's said he's very upset with the film industry. He's you know he's angry with it. You know, it's yeah. it's you know, and so I think that comes out in the book, but not in a very angry way. Kind of to qualify what I said a little bit earlier, him being so angry. The book doesn't read angry. You know, it reads. I think it's more frustrated than angry. Yeah, it doesn't really read angry because that's a very unappealing yeah. thing. And like I said, I'm going to come back back to that later on another puzzle piece, but. Um, He's that. I mean, being John Malkovich was what launched him. So I think it's appropriate that he went back and kind of revisited similar things, and sure. uh, you know, in, in a cathartic way of like kind of where he is and where he started. Absolutely. So what do you got for your next piece? Uh, so I'm going to mention uh, "Infinite Jest" by David Foster Wallace, which is probably mm-hmm. going to be one of the most read books on this list of mine. Uh, be, it being kind of a modern phenomenon. And despite it being a thousand pages, and that's one of the things that um, I want to compare it is just the ambition and the scope of this book. I think that David Foster Wallace was a cultural moment in the literary community, and I think it's inspired and kind of set the tone for a lot of modern books of what's possible and what's marketable. I think you know, Infinite mm-hmm. Jest sold over a million copies now. And that's pretty amazing. And it's, and it's, you know, experimental. It has a very unconventional narrative structure. It's, it's ambitious in terms of its social commentary. And it's, it does all this brilliant stuff, footnotes and how it explores that idea. It's, you know, very, very funny and, and, and sophisticated. Uh, but I think they have, they share, I think there couldn't really be an ant kind without an infinite jest. And I don't know if mm. it's creatively, I'm not sure if uh, Kaufman would ever directly like, write a book like infinite jest but i think that book made a landscape possible for ant kind to f- whatever success it finds it's kind of in it i think it'd be in debt to the success of infinite jest right did you notice that there is one uh footnote in this book and then there's no there's no further information on that there's just a <laughs> one next to i am certain is i wonder if that's a uh, a callback to that I, I imagine it, it is, you know, uh, I didn't know, I didn't know that I'm learning that just now as you told me that, but I could, I would imagine that, that it is some type of reference, you know, David Foster Wallace was, you know, a huge influence and, and in many ways, kind of the anti Kaufman because he was so, uh, committed to, he does very, he had a very interesting perspective on irony that we're too consumed with irony and that right. sincerity is kind of where real comedy lives uh when the person's being played straight that's when it's funniest and there's there's whole kinds of theories that he wrote about that and in a way i think kaufman explores similar themes in ant kind Uh, i think b himself is so sincere but the whole the whole thing is so ironic you know the ant ant kind itself is a huge dense piece of irony so in a way it's the antithesis of infinite jest and yet i think it's part of the lineage sure yeah that, that makes a lot of sense does it? Um, well, I'm gonna, <laughs> I hope so. It, 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 I think it does because, <laughs> okay. I, yeah, because it, it, it's, it sounds like that, that, uh, that combination of, well, first of all, the, like you said, the bigness of it and like the, uh, you know, the expansive book going like just so huge and so long and so, you know, so much being, included in it but then to to fill it with both comedy and kind of anti-comedy in a way and kind of mm-hmm. 
you know, going going the ironic direction, but then the character is more sincere. And I mean, there is just such a big mix of themes there, you know? Yeah, I guess one, one of the things that Antkind surprised me about, and this is kind of a, a criticism of the book, is that it's kind of thin on what it's actually about. You know, it's, right. it's well, you know, there's not a lot of, you know, it, it like it touches on many things, right? It kind of touches on many topical things, on many societal things, on on a lot of creative things, but it makes very few points about them. And not that every mm-hmm. book has to make points or preach to you. Maybe that's that's part of what Kaufman was going for is not to preach to us. And that's so in that sense, I understand. But it seemed when it was all said and done, somewhat thin on the really the substance of it. The substance sure. of it was the madness, was the absurdity, was the hilarity from page to page. But there wasn't a lot of, you know, like I feel like adaptation is about so much. Adaptation is is incredibly dense, and you oh, can yeah. extrapolate so much. And for a book that's seven hundred pages, I haven't really thought about it much. There were there weren't ideas in it that really penetrated me on any type of sincere level. I had a fun time sure. reading it. I laughed, and then I closed the book, and I went about my life. And that was kind yeah. of a that was an interesting that that's unexpected. I want I thought there'd be more, something like Infinite well, Jest. There's there's a lot. I'll, I've been chewing on Infinite Jest for twenty years. Right. Yeah, and and I I think I could agree with you on that. While I also probably I feel like I enjoyed it maybe more than you because I think even though I do love the uh, the deep ideas that Charlie Kaufman explores in most of his films especially adaptation, like you just said, which is my next piece. Uh, you know, it, it was just, it made it more of a fun thing to get through. And that mm-hmm. that's also rewarding in its own way, of course. But sure. to go to go to that next piece, adaptation, uh, and I'm skipping over human nature here because I've actually only seen it once and I'm not sure there's probably some connection that could be made to human nature <laughs> yeah. as well. Uh, but um you know, adaptation, of course, is a movie I've brought up a lot. It's, you know, I, I always call it my favorite film. I, I'm sticking with that. Uh, but, of course, Charlie has written himself into this one as well, which is a major thing from adaptation. I'm sure a lot of people hearing that maybe would make their eyes roll a little bit. But I think it does work so well for him to be doing that again here with within all of the 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 wackiness, as well as the fact that this character is a film critic and cites, you know, dozens and dozens of films. Just before we started recording, I sent you somebody made a letterbox list of all the films that he mentions. And how would he not mention Charlie Kaufman films? And... <laughs> For him to be a film critic, how would he not criticize the hell out of Charlie Kaufman films, you know? So it kind of makes sense as well. Uh, But aside from that, I also was very much reminded of the Charlie Kaufman character in Adaptations, uh, interactions with his agent. Uh, (laughs) and the way B is interacting with his agent uh, here in Ant Kind, his his, uh, film critic literary agents in this case. But uh, there there was like a very similar uh, uh, like way that they talk in this as Mm -hmm. well, I felt. Yeah, they're all all business, right? Yeah. The adaptation (laughs) guy is so offensive, talking about fucking women (laughs) in the ass as they walk past his office. Yeah, it was, um, you know, was shocking twenty years ago, and it's shocking now, <laughs> even more so. But I love that. Now he has very little respect, I think, for that side of the artistic community, the reps. Yeah, that's yeah. clear. 
<laughs> well, <laughs> the thing about to touch on your puzzle piece a little bit about the writing himself into it. What I admire about Charlie Kaufman is that he is a narcissist, clear, clear, clearly, and yet mm-hmm. he hides that so beautifully by making his character, his version of himself, as pathetic as possible. Right. Um, and people don't, we don't really think of it as narcissism. You know, we don't really look at it that way because he's so pathetic. I mean, Nicolas Cage opening, I mean, what a great performance, by the way, oh, you know, just a best. side note. So, so good. Um, but the opening of that film is a monologue about what a piece of shit he is. And yeah. then the entirety <laughs> of the entirety of ant kind is, is just denigrating and smudging the name of Charlie Kaufman and calling out all the criticism they it's kind of again it's kind of like it's one of those things of like getting ahead of criticism like Mm -hmm. pointing out that you know what people think about you and therefore you are deflecting it you know it's this kind of like weird incestuous thing that i think artists have with critics they they kind of own the mistakes they make and therefore they don't seem like mistakes and it's very clever of him to do that (laughs) but i mean a narcissist is a narcissist is a narcissist but but in a fun way. I mean, I have no problem with it. I think it works beautifully. And I think it's hilarious. Yeah. And I think he does it really well. I mean, what's the difference between him and Federico Fellini? Federico Fellini made movies about him openly. He cast Marcello Mastriani as a as a Fellini avatar. So this mm-hmm. is something that some artists do. And the thing is, is that there's no rules in art. Either it works or it doesn't. Wow. Right? If it doesn't yeah. work, we call it bullshit or we call it pretentious or we call it narcissistic. But if it works, we call it genius. So whatever, you know, just do it. And if it works, then great. And if it doesn't, then we'll mock you. And that's really, that's, that's, that's it. That's the end of that one. Absolutely. So what do you, what do you got for your next piece? <laughs> so uh, I'm going to bring up a, a great and confounding book, uh, a book that all weird books wish to be, which is James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake. So a quick anecdote about Finnegan's Wake. It took me six years to read it, and I probably understand 2% of it. Uh, it's a very complicated book. It took, it took him 17 years to write, Mr. Joyce, probably the greatest English language writer after Shakespeare, in my opinion. James Joyce is truly the great writer. And uh, it's a dream book. It's a book of dreams. It's a, you know... It's a follow-up to Ulysses, which takes place all in one day, which is a challenge unto itself. And that's another part I want to mention about Joyce's experimentation with time. I think that's something mm-hmm. that Kaufman does and is inspired by. But Finnegan's Wake in particular, because it's a dream narrative that makes literally no sense. That you, it, right. it, it's written in a vernacular made up of slang and made up of regional uh, colloquialisms. And you have to basically what I, so I I had about 30 false starts, right? I couldn't get past the first page. I read the first page. It was all gobbledygook. I closed the book and I went back on my shelf. And this is being a diehard James Joyce fan. I had read Ulysses. I'd read Dubliner's Portrait of an Artist as a Young Man, the whole bit. And I could not crack the first page of Finnegan's Wake. And the whole Hmm. literary world said that it was a practical joke. They said, this is not a serious novel. This is a joke. He played a joke on us. But I, I'm hard-pressed to believe that a, a genius such as him spent 17 years writing only a joke. Uh, 
Was it funny? Certainly. It is certainly funny. And it is thumbing his nose at people and saying, here, here's a puzzle. Solve this for the next hundred years. But that's certainly part of it. But there is a great book in there somewhere. And what I learned is I had to read it out loud. It's actually music. And the only way that I could get through it was reading it out loud to myself. And I had to accept that I was only going to understand part of it, that it was not only for me, that people in small parts of Ireland would understand a chapter because of the dialect Mm. and the vernacular. And I would not understand that part. And so there was this, this submission to it. And I think that the, there's never been a book as bold, as ambitious, as confounding, as frustrating as Finnegan's Wake. And I think that all great absurdist books are in the shadow of it. So I'm not sure if Charlie Kaufman sat down and said, I'm going to write my version of Finnegan's Wake. I'm not sure if it's that direct, but we all Mm -hmm. owe a great debt to Finnegan's Wake for just its, insanity and uh, and it's music right. and that's uh i mean that's it's and then joyce in general with his with time you know they say finnegan's yeah. wake is all one night or they say ulysses takes place all in one day and that one we can confirm it does take place all in one day and I, and the thing about kaufman is he keeps bringing up three months did you notice three months this right it, not like just the, the film thing yeah it's not just yeah. the film the film takes place the film is three months long but everything is three He's months. He's in the hospital for three months. He's working at various jobs for three months. Everything's uh, three months. Many things. Right. Yeah. So there was this reoccurring theme of time and what time meant. Now, the book doesn't ever give us that. It's very similarly, similarly to where Finnegan's Wake never gives us a satisfying ending where the guy wakes up from a dream. You know, that doesn't exist either. Uh, what's cool about mm-hmm. Finnegan's Wake, and this is the little last tidbit, I'll talk about it, because trust me, I can go on about it. I've studied <laughs> I, It's a fascinating <laughs> book. It kind of ruled my life for a few years. But um, it's written in a circular structure, it, which is very unique. So it, it, the first line is a sentence fragment and opens up in the middle of a, of a sentence. And then 600 pages later or whatever, it ends in the middle of the same sentence. So it's written actually like a labyrinth in a circle, and it begins well, in the same, kn- same sentence. That's kind of how that's kind of how Ant Kind is then. Yeah, because exactly. Ant Kind starts with uh, it started with a thunk or something like that, and mm-hmm. then it ends with him falling down a hole and landing at the bottom of the hole. Yep. Um, so absolutely, we're in that same kind of, and and it's so disorienting because it, then you're left with a whole new way to think about the book, and like you said, maybe. Maybe Charlie Kaufman's not trying to say any big things with this one. Maybe it's just for the sake of comedy. But at the same time, it does. If you if you are going to sit with it and and try to explore everything that happened and what was real, what wasn't, what was part of the film, what was part of the remembering of the film, what was part of just his imagination, it all goes around in a circle and it all is mixed up. And that I think is the ultimate thing that's happening here is that. It's just dealing with the fragileness of memories and and our imaginations. Yeah, and kind of how it's a cyclical process. Like we remember things and we forget things and we seem to be doing the same thing over and over again and our lives are kind of on these loops. And, yeah, you know, that's I think that I'm not sure if even Joyce was making that comment in, in making the book so labyrinth-like. But yeah. it's definitely a, this... That we're kind of like, as human beings, we're on this loop. We're on this carnival ride that's just going around and around. And I think those they right. share that idea. You can extrapolate that idea anyway. Sure. 
Well, I'm going to skip over Confessions of a Dangerous Mind and go to <laughs> Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Minds from 2004, directed by Michelle Gondry. And, uh, of course, here in Ant Kind, we, like we were just saying, just dealing with a lot of questions about memory and about whether or not memory can be altered, changed, uh, whether or not our memories are accurate. Uh, whether or not things can be remembered correctly and what, what memories actually mean to us. And also uh, within the, the scenes of hypnosis within this book, uh, dealing with digging up memories and, and getting rid of them in order to get to the, the important stuff. And so th there's a lot of that dealing with the mind and dealing with memory that is a direct connection, I think, back to Eternal Sunshine. Oh, yeah, certainly. I think Charlie Kaufman's preoccupied with how unreliable our memories are. And really, yeah. our memory is the only thing we have as a path to identity. I mean, who we are is made up of what we remember, and we don't remember much. That's, that's the mm -hmm. saddest, that's like a really sad, to me, that's the saddest thing. That's much sadder than death. Death is not... A sad thing in my opinion it's it's a motivator to make something out of your life you know it's it's you have a time limit right, clock's right. ticking get moving type of thing so i can find positivity in death what i have a hard time with is that who i am is made up of what i remember and not only do i not remember very much but i taint my memories i change them i they mutate i i color they're them. always changing yeah they're not objective at all and there's something very beautiful about that, of course, that we kind of remember things how we want to. Uh, this is something, this is not a puzzle piece, but briefly, uh, you know, a Fellini thing. He did that often. He made a movie called Ambercord, and uh, it, it actually translates to I remember. Uh, and mm -hmm. uh, it, it's an, in, in a very specific Italian dialect. And it's about his memories. And was that really what Italy mm -hmm. was like when he was growing up? No. But that's what his life was like to him. You know, and that's that's profound. Uh, I guess that's kind of touching on memories is that that was the thing I felt was a little thin of the book as he was like, that was the point he was making is like memories are our own and they change. And, <laughs> and I was like, yeah. So, so you don't, you don't think he discovered something with time rabies that travel back in time and alter our memories. You, you don't think that he's getting, well, getting to some deeper truth there. Well, that's, I guess <laughs> here's my problem with it. I think is that there was like a chapter, I don't know, maybe two or three, from the end, right? Third third to mm -hmm. the end. That was kind of like this revelatory chapter where, and I guess it's kind of poking fun. It depends on how you look at it. But it felt like it felt like Chuck Kaufman was just like giving us a deep, giving us a deep chapter to be like, all that you read was worth it because of this very minor revelation that memory right, isn't right. perfect. And I was like, yeah, I know memory is not perfect. I know that already. Yeah, I, I've, I've already... That's the thing is, either it's ironic and he's purposefully giving us this lame thing that, that B himself, you know, because he himself is so lame, that character can't really have a profound revelation. And I will accept that right, explanation. Right. I, will, I, will, I will accept that. But at the same time, how it reads is that, like, here's 700 pages of nonsense and then here's one chapter where like it means something profound and and it's not profound you know memory right. is imper you know memory is imperfect i feel like a major goal of this was to make himself laugh like yeah, I think it, so really, no, it really it really right. seems like he's amusing himself you know 
for sure. I think I think I read I saw in an interview that he said like, you know, he was nervous about his ability to write at the level of the great writers. You know, he was nervous about the quality of the literature itself. But he said, well, but it's funny, and a funny book only needs to be funny. And I think that right. that's not really I don't really think that's self-deprecating. I think that's honest. Like he he sure. he this he might have a limitation in his writing ability in this medium because I think he's one of the mm-hmm. finest screen write, screenplay writers ever that ever lived, you know, screenwriters right. to live. But maybe in this medium he has certain limitations and his goal was to make us laugh and he succeeded there, you know, tenfold. Right. So, so what do you got for your next piece? Well, I'll just stick on the memory theme. I'll, I'll just briefly touch on this one. It's called um, Remembrance of Things Past, but it's also translated sometimes in, in Search of Lost Time, and it's by Marcel Proust. And Proust is considered possibly the greatest French writer to ever live. He wrote this massive, I believe, six or seven volume book, Remembrance of Things Past. And mm-hmm. it's all about the unreliability of memory, a man bites into a cookie and it brings him back to his childhood. And then this like over a thousand page multi-volume book springs from this single moment when he bites into this cookie (laughs) and it brings him back to his childhood. And it's all about the exploration of memory and time. And what does it do to people? It's, it's the, it's the great crowning achievement of time and memory in literature. And it's, Mm -hmm. um, it's brilliant. It's it's beautiful. Every single page of that insane amount of volumes, <laughs> and uh, I think it's considered <laughs> the longest book in history. I, I may be wrong. You know, something oh, wow. may have surpassed it, or I, I'm I'm not sure if that's 100 percent reliable. But I know it's considered one of the longest works of fiction ever created, and uh, if not the, and it's it's a masterpiece, and it really is about the, you know, the subtlety and the subjective view we take on our lives very beautifully done mm-hmm. right on well i'm gonna move right along to my next piece which is 2008 synecdoche new york which i do think shares the most with ant kind i i feel like ant kind in a lot of ways is like a more comedic uh companion piece to synecdoche new york i think he's dealing with a lot of the same uh themes and issues and uh as far as just the story is concerned itself i mean we're dealing with a filmmaker who has created this all-encompassing film that has taken him 90 years it takes three months to watch which is very in a way similar to caden's uh play that is going to have everything in it (laughs) yeah and and just growing completely out of control spiraling out of control i i i a line from Synecdoche, New York, uh, there are nearly 13 million people in the world. None of those people is an extra. They're all leads in their own story, which I always thought was so great. Um, I I think that is such a a perfect connection to this whole concept of the seen versus the unseen, which Mm -hmm. for those who haven't read the book, uh, the filmmaker Ingo, who has stop motion animated every character and every scene within the movie, uh, this three-month-long movie, he has also animated all of the unseen characters who are off-camera because they all have their own story and they're all their own person and they can't be forgotten about just because they're unseen. And I, I think that is totally something that he was dealing with in Synecdoche, New York, trying to include everything within this production. 
Oh yeah, yeah. I think that there's a direct correlation. I, I think I do think it's an almost an answer to synecdoche. You know, which is funny because usually other artists will make answers to certain things, but I feel like he needed, in a way, I feel like <clears throat> Antkind is more about us watching synecdoche because B mm -hmm. is an audience member to Ingo's film, and you know, Caden, we're with we're with Caden on on his creative journey. But we're with B trying to appreciate Ingo's movie. And I right. think that was one of the things that is was more satisfying to me. Uh, maybe because I am I consider myself an artist, and so maybe I found something more personal in it. But the idea of making art, especially filmmaking, it, it often gets commandeered by the more traditional idea of success. Right, you want you need mm -hmm. to get people to see it. You know, you all. I'm always looking for money. You know, these are things that it makes it very hard to, you know, because I want to just create things artistically. It's another reason why I write poetry, like I mentioned earlier, because I don't have to be hunting for money. I don't have to sell myself. Mm -hmm. I don't have to sell the idea always. Now, of course, if I were to publish that poetry and try to sell mass amounts of books, I'd have to get into that whole process too. But there's right. something he in the book. Uh, Kaufman mentions a lot of outsider art, a guy named uh, Henry Darger, who was a janitor. His, this is a real person. And he was a janitor mm. his entire life. And then he died. And they, in, in his apartment, they found a 15,000 page book that he had written his whole life. And, uh, oh, wow. and he, they found hundreds of watercolor paintings that illustrated the book. And he's a fascinating, and he was like, he's like the pioneer or the most well-known of outsider artists. So the concept of outsider right. artists being that they'd never achieve commercial success, but that we don't. That's going to be me one day with my albums. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's us, me too, right? We'll be the champions of outsider art. They never made it. Yeah. They never were successful. It's time, it's time <laughs> to celebrate them. No, but this was a man, this was a very humble man, janitor, that you know, just no one knew what he was doing. And he never, he never sought that, you know. And it's tough to know what his motives were, but he never looked for conventional success. He never looked for an audience. And I think Kaufman is suggesting, again, kind of ironically, being this, this is a professional book with a book deal that was going to get published, you know, whenever he handed it over, that mm -hmm. an artist doesn't always look for an audience, which is, and so I'm kind of thinking through this process as I'm saying it. So sorry if it's not as eloquent as I usually am. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, but to me, there's kind of a weird issue with that because as a filmmaker, it's a very beautiful thing of where it's deeply selfish right you make this movie because you're fascinated by the concept and you're doing it to express yourself artistically but then the final stage of that is giving it away you know giving it to an audience right what is a film without an audience really it's just a masturbatory experience for you which there's there's value in expressing yourself but as a filmmaker there's a paradox because it's about other people and it's about giving it to other people and i i never i never hope that i put an idea in my films that someone's going to get, you know, I'm not trying to like tell them something and I want them to figure out what I meant a year ago. My hope is that they find something of value in it and make it personal. And how are they wrong for interpreting it differently than I quote unquote meant it. So there's, so when I was reading the book of Antkind and I, he kind of expressed, you know, Ingo was kind of this great outsider artist like a Henry Darger. 
which he mentions Darger mm-hmm. in the book by name, it was, it's conflicting because there is something so beautiful about not looking for commercial success and just doing it for you and being an artist in that pure right. sense. But as a filmmaker, does that ever really exist? Right. I don't know. Like, why are yeah, we doing no, this podcast? It's, it's, is it so I could talk to you or is it so that people could listen to it and hopefully find some value in something and read something they haven't read or watch a movie they haven't watched? Like it's for other people. This is about giving it away. Right. Now, if you get some awesome deal, someone wants to sponsor you and get, you know, you get sponsored by Gatorade for piecing it together. That's good. You get to, you know, you get make a little money, but is, does that take away your an interesting sponsor choice? I don't know. Yeah, I just named something. I, I, yeah, <laughs> but I don't know. I'm just I, I like I like the I like the idea that you've got a Gatorade bottle sitting on your desk right now. That's where you came up with it. That's that's exactly what happened. I just Kaiser Soze'd you. I just looked behind. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I went off on a tangent. I apologize, everybody. I was just kind of thinking through that idea, but the book, you know, it's like we want we want to be deeply personal and private, but is that really what a film is? You know, that, that, I guess that's right. one of the deeper things the film, the book did make me think about. That's where it succeeded in going on a deeper level. I don't know if that's too subjective though. I don't, I don't if that's just my, my journey with the book. Not to go deeper on this tangent, but you know, this episode is going to be crazy long compared to most episodes anyway. <laughs> like the book. So, but yeah, like the book, but I, you know, I made that joke that my music, uh, will, will be discovered as some, you know, some unseen art eventually, but Honestly, this whole quarantine situation has me in this really weird frame of mind where it's like, I just want to continue creating and mm. I, I, I can't get out there. Like I, I can't go, I can't do shows. I can't like go to film festivals with my videos. I can't, you know, it's like, mm. I kind of am just doing it for myself at the, at the current moment without any knowledge of if there's ever going to be a back to a kind of normal where I can go out there and, and promote it in any kind of real meaningful way. And so it's, it kind of feels like I'm just doing it for myself right now. Yeah, no, that's true. That's very true. And and it's a strange time. It's a strange time. Yeah. I've, I've tried to live in the place where these ideas overlap. Like the reason why I want conventional success is that I have access to the level that I feel like I should be performing at. I don't care about money. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I mean, the thing is, money is nice. I want money to live. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah that's, right. that's why I want money. But the reason why I want someone to give me insane amounts of money is so that I could make a film at the level that I feel that I am capable. You know, and that's where the right. paradox comes in. I am searching for money, not from greed, not, but it's because I, I don't, I, I'm making movies now on, on shoestring budgets and it's extremely satisfying. And I love it. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's fantastic, but I want to make the, I want to go bigger. I want to do bigger right. things. And just because of the art form I've chosen, it requires this ridiculous sum of, you know, inhuman money. So right. it, it's, yeah. you know, I, and I'm always hunting it. I'm always looking for it. I'm always this man trying to sell myself and sell my projects and blah, blah, blah. And it's weird because it's actually not, for those conventional, I don't, I don't need a golden statue. I don't need, you know, to win awards or I just want to be at that level. You know, it's mm-hmm. like the, the, at the ultimate peak of what I can do, what I think I can do. I'd like to see myself do that. So it's just kind of, that's with another no weird thing. Yeah. With no restraints. You know, I need, I need to hire no. 
the best crews. I need to hire the best people. And that, that just costs money. And so, yeah, I, I, I envy musicians in this day and age because you can invest five to 10 grand and make brilliant, you know, high, the highest quality stuff that's competitive with, the, uh, you know, they, they spend 40 grand, you can spend five. And that's true right, in a lot of ways right. for filmmaking too. But in, at the, in, term, in terms of the highest possible level, it's still, you need, you need, you need crazy money still for filmmaking. Let's move on to your next piece then. Uh, what, what do you got next? Uh, so I'm going to mention the uh, work of Franz Kafka. This is something that I think has chased Kaufman uh, for his entire career. This kind of, you know, the, with the Kafka-esque has become a phrase in our, in our popular vernacular, you know, our popular lexicon mm-hmm. of phrases. Things are Kafka-esque. There's even a Breaking Bad episode called Kafka-esque. And it's just associated yeah. with weird things, right? It's just weird now. Right. Uh, but he was an early pioneer of surrealist literature, uh, the metamorphosis being one of his most famous, where a man wakes up one day and he's mysteriously turned into a gigantic bug or rodent, depending on the, on the um, translation you read. And I would mention meta- metamorphosis specifically because of the bug imagery. You know, the ants... How different really is it from a giant roach? There is a, even a giant ant, an autonomous, mm-hmm. brilliant ant that creates a reverse rabies. So how is, is that Gregor Samsa from the metamorphosis? We uh, will never know. But the other thing is I'd, rec- I'd say the castle, uh, maybe more cosmetically, because in the castle, the main character only goes by K. And uh, mm. in this book, he only goes by B. Um, right. And then the trial is another one of Kafka's that I recommend and and talk about as a puzzle piece, because it's about a character who is put on trial for a crime he doesn't know what it is. He's he's never been told what he's charged with, and this entire trial happens and he has no idea what's going on. And I feel like B is always being persecuted and he doesn't understand sure. why he's all he is on trial, just not literally. And uh, he he makes many comments about that, but he doesn't know what crime he's committed. Right, right. So very Kafka. Yeah, he, he seems he seems to be a punching bag for the universe in a way. <laughs> yeah, for Ka- for Kaufman, Kaufman I think is the god of this universe, yeah. and I think he's enjoying just torturing the character, and he's big kid with a magnifying glass. It feels like. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I'm gonna do. I was gonna skip it, but I might as well include it. The 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 last Kaufman project that we've gotten, Anomalisa. Of course, the puppets, that's a connection right there. But also, <laughs> I, I, I think there's also the, um, the main character's like kind of desire to connect with other people, but also being kind of a self, uh, self-involved, kind of, kind of a dick of a character who yeah. isn't really that interested in connecting with other people when it comes down to it. And so I, I think that there's a, a kind of push and pull there within that, that mind <laughs> of uh whether you like people or not and whether you want to connect with people or not and so i I think that that's kind of a connection with this b character well to me that's also something that feels very autobiographical that feels like it's very revealing of kaufman himself again that's just an assumption but it's like i get the feeling that because kaufman writes these very humanist pieces of work you know where he's trying to look at people and get to the reality of them. He doesn't want to sensationalize them. And he, want, and he wants mm-hmm. to value the, the normal human struggle and strife. But I feel like Kaufman likes people in theory. You know, he likes them right. 
he likes them as an idea. And I don't know if he would. And again, this is total, you know, conjecture. I'm just going off my feelings based on his work. I get the sense that he probably is a very private person and he doesn't want to, he wants to be left alone, but he wants to write mm-hmm. great books and, and great films about the human experience without really dealing with humans. <laughs> so I feel right. like that's a lot of artists. <laughs> A lot of yeah. artists, you know, I, I, I consider myself a humanist. It's really the only philosophy that I adhere to. I'm not a religious person, and I consider myself a humanist. And I try to make work, uh, my work kind of have a humanism slant. Uh, and, mm. but, and I try to be optimistic about people. But at the same time, you have a hard time, given the reality that you live in, you know, live with day in and day out, where, you know, fake doctors are going online and saying that there's, you know, demons and and that you should take drugs that don't work and then you, and you're like just kill everybody just just kill everyone yeah. you know just let everyone die let covid run why wild. are we continuing as as a yeah. species why do are we, we looking need, for a cure like do we need that's <laughs> do we need to be here let's just let let's go back let's global warming let's crank it up and let's all let the ants take there. over yeah so there's i i battle that and uh, that kind of misanthropic view because my my nature is to be optimistic. My nature is actually to like people, but then I'm also constantly right. angry. So I don't know. I relate, buddy. Yeah, and then I think Kaufman <laughs> does too. Again, it's so ironic. You know, he yeah. wants to write these great pieces of, you know, of humanism, and yet I just don't feel like he likes people very much. <laughs> so there's that irony as well. <laughs> so what do you got for your next piece? Uh, so I'm going to bring up with the great German, I'm sorry, I almost said German, I meant Russian, excuse me, uh, Dostoevsky, the great writer, my favorite writer, possibly, I don't know, I, I said James Joyce is the greatest writer, maybe he is, objectively, but I think one of my personal favorites, the man I connect with, was, is Dostoevsky, the Russian writer of Crime and Punishment, and and uh, the bro- Brothers Karamazov, and Demons, and a lot of great books. Um, but I'm going to bring up two works in particular from him, which is going to be Notes from Underground, which is a short novel. David, you should read it, you son of a bitch. Okay. And um, <laughs> it's the first half of the book is just this guy screaming, like just this angry rant. Uh, and it's But it's beautiful. And it's a very well written book. And that's probably, you know, very B, very B like first person ranting. And then the other book I'll mention briefly is, is a book called The Double, which is an earlier book from Dostoevsky and kind of considered one of his minor works. Um, he wrote another one of his classics is The Idiot, uh, which is a book as a book I'm adapting with a buddy of mine, mm-hmm. um, Dylan Gallagher. He and I are making a show out of The Idiot, a modern reimagining. So this guy I am very deeply connected with Dostoevsky personally. But The Double is a book that also has had a huge influence on me, and I think of a lot of modern literature and film and television the idea in the double there's a guy kind of a kind of a loser and one day he shows up to work and there's an exact duplicate of him but a successful one and Mm. this has been repeated endlessly throughout film and television there's just a recent adaptation for film uh done at the double yeah with jesse eisenberg uh and so there's all kinds of yeah this is in the popular culture even though it's considered one of his minor books and I can see, mm. you know, there's like double Bs and triple Bs in, in Antkind, yeah. right? There's like multiple duplicates of this guy. And I think that comes directly from Dostoevsky. But Dostoevsky is the kind of guy, you need to sit down and read the book. You know, you need to like take a week off of work and read The Brothers Karamazov. Yeah. Everyone should read it. If everyone read The Brothers Karamazov, it'd be a better, this would be a better world. 
but it's very hard mm. reads. These are dense reads. This is not like, oh, go yeah. have a picnic and read this book. No, you have to like take a month off work and you know not look at right. your children <laughs> and just read and just read it. Well, in our next quarantine, maybe that'll be my my new project. Yeah, quarantine <laughs> part two. I'd say yes. That's yeah, right. try to grow a healthy orchid and read some Dostoevsky. So I am going to move away from Charlie Kaufman projects, and I've got a handful of other puzzle pieces to bring up, and I am going to start with. The animated series, The Critic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> With our, our favorite Jay Sherman, the film critic. And it is just a joke a minute, just cutaways, non sequiturs, just weird asides and, and tangents and lots of film-related humor, film snob humor, film critic humor, jokes about filmmakers and various classic movies and all that kind of stuff. And uh, we, of course, in Antkind are dealing with all of that, all of the above. We get lots and lots of asides with entire chapters that are jokes, such as uh, the comedy duo stuff that just all feels like it could have been little bits and pieces out of critic uh, critic episodes. And uh, you and I you and I have talked off mic before about how great the critic is and how much fun that show was and uh, just how many classic moments there were. And I love being brought back to that, like using the world of Hollywood and just all of these kind of tropes and things that we just know from so many movies as a basis for so much comedy is so great. Yeah, it's and it's a great show. I mean, it's just it's it's one of those shows that have st- has stood the test of time for me. It's still yeah. funny. And, uh, I mean, and yeah, what I was, I was kind of surprised. I mean, <clears throat> let me take that back. I wasn't surprised. Ant Kind is such a deep cut on film nerd stuff. I mean, it is film mm-hmm. nerdy and, uh, and unabashedly so. And I was really excited. You know, I, I sometimes I think about how, like, if, if everyone's going to get all these things. But then I think about, well, at the same right. time, there's a million things in here I'm not going to get. It's not like I'm going to get every single reference. you know. So it's like, who cares? Go nuts. It's so dense with just so many jokes and little bits and pieces and asides and stuff. Yeah. All right. What do you got for your next piece? I'm going to talk about a book uh, called Portnoy's Complaint by Philip Roth. And this was a cultural phenomenon of a book. And uh, it's about a Jewish guy who goes in, the whole book is designed like a therapist session. And it's, it was kind of an ingenious concept. And this Jewish guy just talks about his general neuroses and malaise and his, his graphic depictions of self-abuse, a.k.a. masturbation. <laughs> and sure. very funny. Uh, and so, yeah, it, it's just, um, it's, it, was, it was an iconic book at the time in the 60s because it really made it kind of crystallized this Jewish neuroses that's mixed with humor, you know, what's considered the Jewish Mm. humor, which of course these are stereotypes and not every Jewish person is the same type of humor and all those things. But what what became in the, in the popular consciousness of what being a Jewish person is in terms of comedy was kind of crystallized with Portnoy's complaint. Mm -hmm. And I feel like he is constantly fighting his Jewishness, but I have a suspicion that B is Jewish. Right. Yeah, I think it, maybe he just doesn't realize it. I don't know. But uh, there's there's so much Jewishness there, even though he keeps saying he's not. But uh, yeah, he's a, as a Jew, I can say that. 
(laughs) (laughs) I will move on to my next piece. And this one is actually a song, which is a unique piece. It is Tenacious D's Tribute. Um, because of course our character B is trying to relay this film that he says is the greatest film, or at least, uh, at the very least, an absolute masterpiece. Uh, and the, the film that he is remembering is not quite exactly the same thing in any way. It might not be at <laughs> all the same thing. And of course that is, that is the theme and story behind the song tribute from the comedy duo Tenacious D. They are trying to remember the greatest song in the world, but it doesn't actually sound anything like the song that they're currently singing this cover that they're making, which isn't even really a cover, which That's is really just, it's, it's one of the best funny songs ever. Yeah, that's a really funny puzzle piece. I hadn't thought about it, but it's so close. That's really good. Yeah. I remember discovering that Tenacious D album was like finding a pot of gold. You know what I mean? When you were a kid, yeah, I was a young kid <laughs> yeah. when it came out, and I was like, this is the greatest thing that ever existed, was, is this album. So funny and so and so good. They're such it good is. musicians. It's so technically good. Yeah. yeah. They're very good musicians. The music is very good. It's one of the only like joke albums that I could listen to, really listen to it as music. Mm-hmm. Amazing. So yeah, and it's a yeah, and a perfect example. Yeah, for the so book. good. <laughs> so what do you got for your next piece? Uh, I'm gonna bring up a, a great book uh, of the magical realism genre, which I think uh, Ant Kind kind of dips its toe in. You know, we 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 throw words around like absurdist or absurdism as a genre or as a kind of a subcategory creatively. But I think magical realism is, is its own thing. And I definitely think that uh, Antkind fits into there. This is a great book called 100 Years of Solitude. And it's by a Colombian novelist named Gabriel, Gar- Gab- Gabriel Garcia Marquez, pardon me. And uh, it's, the, again, kind of its sheer ambi- ambition. There's, the char- there's like many, many characters that have all the same first name. And so you have to read like very carefully as you like who are we actually discussing because it's like this everyone has the same name and uh, there's a lot of dream imagery and things of that nature you know multiplicity repetition you know again kind of mm-hmm. that comes back even from the dostoevsky double you know idea this is all this kind of lineage from these great books that led to modern magical realism and absurdity and uh and yeah so 100 years of solitude just kind of again touches on that that kind of confusion and repetition and it's a very good book classic book yeah that that confusion again we've kind of mentioned this a few times throughout this conversation but it really kind of lends itself for to this like deteriorating mindset that b is in where you you really are not sure if what he's what he's thinking at any given moment is what's happening or is any kind of a real world and it just adds to a just a general confusion throughout yeah, I mean, I guess there's one of the, just to touch on the, the length of Antkind, where I think where it succeeds is that you eventually submit to it. You know, I feel like there's going to be a lot of people that are just going to stop reading it at some point, I imagine. Mm-hmm. But if right. you stick with it, because it is very interesting, it's interesting and fun to read. So if you keep reading it, there is just, you kind of submit to the idea that you're not going to always understand hundred percent of what's going on or, or, or where you are in a, in the linear timeline, or if you're in a, or if you're in the film or if you're in his point of view, or if you're in a dream or if you're in a, you know, sub tangent somewhere or whatever. Cause there's also like films within the film 
and there's dreams within the dreams because he's in the psychiatrist's office and he goes into his own hypnosis. And then in the hypnosis, there's like sub hypnosis and sub dreams at times. So you, I mean, you can mm. follow it if you're paying close enough attention, but there is kind of like sure. a, just handing yourself over to it at some point. And that kind of even goes right. back to Finnegan's Wake because I just kind of like, I accepted that I wasn't going to understand every page. And that's a very mm. profound lesson, I think, to learn all people should not bring expectations to the art that they're about to experience. I think if we submitted ourselves more to things, um, I think we'd get more out of them. And this, I'm still guilty of kind of bringing my own preconceived expectations to things and why I think a second right. time, you know, reading something a second time or watching a film a second time is so valuable because now I got that kind of crap out of the way and I can just submit more mm -hmm. to what this thing is. So I think the length uh, of the book and the confusion of the book are, are, are a tool for us to just hand ourselves over to it. I think that idea also uh, marries nicely with the fact that we're dealing with a film critic as our main character. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it makes that makes a decision to have our main character be a film critic all the more important. Agreed. Yeah, I think that there's there's a lot there. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know if I mean, Kaufman is, is unique in that he's found such commercial success. And he's found such a huge fan base. But I definitely think that he's still, maybe it's even a response to the criticism he's received to some more conventional thinking critics. But he's just like, submit more. You know, like, this is my fantasy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, why right. not? You know, why not? If you're going to read, if you're going to show up, if you're going to buy this book, you're going to buy a ticket to my movie, just go, go with it. And so maybe there's, right, right. he's pleading a little bit, you know, showing us that we're all, you know, film critics in our own way. And we're all coming we're ready with our pens to make notes about what's wrong with it. So right. that's in yeah. <laughs> So I only got a couple more pieces here. Uh, the next one, definitely too new of a re release to truly be uh, an inspiration in any way. But I think uh, there is a thought process that came from some similar place. And that is Alex Garland's TV series Devs that came out last year. Did you watch this? I haven't watched it, no. It's 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 very good. I, I thought, um, you know, I, I love X Mac and Annihilation not quite as much. I think this falls somewhere in between as far as his works go. Mm. But there's this one uh, idea within the series that I think is also very similar within uh, B's plan to use this one frame from the destroyed film to recreate it by looking forward one frame and back one frame uh -huh. to recreate the whole thing, you know? Mm -hmm. And that whole idea is something that is explored in devs, which I, I found very interesting then. I find it very interesting now that, you know, yeah, maybe you can't look totally to the future or to the past to try to figure out what came before or after, but one frame at a time seems potentially doable in a current sci-fi way even though it's also kind of insane in its own thinking and its own right. thought process uh but it but it makes sense though in in a in a sci-fi way it does make sense yeah and this is slightly unrelated i guess i don't know but it made me think of this technology in the camera world that's that's become a little bit more popular standard basically cameras now that once they're on they're recording all the time. And what they're doing is they're just right. dumping frames if you don't push the button to save them. 
So let's say you mm-hmm. are doing a baseball game and you're taking photos of a baseball game and you and you miss the contact of the baseball and the bat. If the camera's at least pointed at it, it will actually have caught four or five frames. And if you right. push that button, it will then go back and save those frames as opposed to dumping them. So you can actually cap- capture time before it happened. You can, you know, as long as you were, it was in the field of view of the camera, it's always on and watching and saving. So it's, yeah. I mean, not quite the same thing, but we're getting to this idea. That it's least, in the same realm, I think. It's in the same yeah. realm. It, that was kind of, it kind of floored me. I was like, oh, so the camera's just always recording and dumping, recording and dumping, and you can catch moments that you missed. And that's yeah. exciting and terrifying. <laughs> yeah, it very much is so. And I think that that anxiety that uh, Kaufman has is is definitely showing through that kind of an idea. I think I think he would say he's terrified uh, on the terrified side of things with that camera example. Well, and it's the same with Alexa, right? I mean, Alexa is always listening, but it only wakes when right? you say the name. So yeah. if it's uh, I'm going I'm to trust Be- Jeff Bezos here that he's dumping the information i'm just i'm just comfortable with the fact that i'm boring and nobody cares about me and all they want to do is sell me shoes so whatever so you can listen for five (laughs) seconds and then like what what are you going to listen to what are you going to save it for so i don't know people are insane yeah no i i agree (laughs) so uh what do you got for your next piece all right, so I kind of alluded to this a couple of times, and it's not nearly as like exciting as it like talking about it before I bring it up makes it seem. You know, it's not like this big revelation or anything. But I kind of wanted to stay away uh, until I got to this puzzle piece about the anger element that we talked about, the frustration element of it. Uh, there's a mm-hmm. great novel, possibly one of the one of the top five great French novels, especially of the of the modern century. It's a book called Journey to the End of the Night by a guy named Louis Ferdinand Celine. And it's what's unique about Celine, uh, besides the fact that he was a Nazi sympathizer and a super freak. So as a human being, not good. As a writer, excellent. And we have to reconcile that shit, right? That is not easy. Uh, but sure. Journey to the End of the Night made famous Celine's approach to writing, which was to write with all of the anger and bitterness and just nastiness that was this human being's soul. Okay, Celine was a monster, uh, and he wrote that way. He would write using ellipses, the dot, dot, dots, and what he would do is he'd mm. write this anger-infused sentence, and then he'd write dot, 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 and then he'd write another anger-infused sentence, and wow. somehow would write these beautiful ge- mega, mega works of genius, and yet they were you felt the rage pouring off the page it was it's the angriest read and um he goes on to develop that even more so in his later books uh death on the installment plan and blah 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 but during the end of the night made this was his first debut novel changed modern french literature and it's a superb book but what i thought was similar to ant kind is the how palpable the the frustration and or rage of the character it was it was readable on the page and I think mm-hmm. that the way that Kaufman did it was an assault of these tangents and asides, and this you kind of followed his his stream of conscious kind of brain activity, and it was so it was an onslaught of his anxiety and his trepidation and his self loathing and his frustration. It was just again more and more and more and more, and so it became claustrophobic. We felt it. Celine did it slightly differently in terms of the actual text itself, but they they both have this very um, palpable 
frustration and anger to them. Right. Yeah, I and I I think that it all kind of goes back to something that we've talked about in this conversation about where does B end and Charlie Kaufman begin? You know, what mm-hmm. what what is actually his thoughts and I I've seen interviews with him where he he does distance himself from the B character. He says this is not me, mm-hmm. but there are certain aspects of it that you have to imagine are him. Uh, a, a more positive note, not not so much uh, a frustration, is that one page that we shared with each other where he's talking about what the cinema experience is and how it's not just the movie. It's it's what you ate today. It's if you had an argument with your significant other. It's it's mm-hmm. who else is in the theater. It's all that. Things like that, are, I mean, I have to believe are Charlie Kaufman. And hopefully not so much of the negative aspects of the B character are him. Hopefully not too many of those are, although I'm sure some are. But some of that celebration of movies i hope are him yeah i mean it's such a slippery slope to assign characteristics of a character to a real person even if they are semi-autobiographical i mean there it's it's really unfair because we just i mean Mm -hmm. just in general celebrities we assume we know who they are you know which is a problem to begin with you know and and when someone writes something that is so autobiographical or Kaufman has made a made it famous to write autobiographically. Uh, it's even harder for people to separate the fact from the fiction, and it's really wrong of yeah. us to just assume certain things, you know, or, or to really hold that person to that creative standard. I mean, he might mm-hmm. there might be things about B that are very Kaufman, but does that really make it a representation of him? You know, the answer is no. Right. So, do we need a representation of him in his work? No. Yeah. No. And I think what's you know. I think there we think of like most things we think of things in too black and white of terms to where we mm-hmm. have um you know we have the author that writes what they really think and then they have the then we have the author who writes the exact opposite of what they really think to show you what they actually think and I think that there's overlap right. there there's there's gray there mm-hmm. you you can do both and I think Kaufman uh in his ambition and in his scope probably ended up doing a little bit of both of those things. He probably wrote things the exact opposite of what he felt to give you a wink, wink, Mm -hmm. nudge, nudge of, hey, I I think the opposite of this. And then he wrote things that he actually felt, and then he wrote somewhere in between. And And he gave B original thoughts entirely. So we'll never really know, and we can only surmise these things, and we can kind of go with our instincts. But they have to hit a wall at some point, because we can't hold Charlie Kaufman to what, what we imagine his character you know, how, how similar his character is to him, but sure. you're right. I, I hope the positive things are Charlie and I hope that the bad things are B, but there's probably yeah. overlap there too. <laughs> <laughs> right. For sure. Or and that's the thing is you also, you hold contradictory thoughts in your head all the time. Oh yeah. You know I mean? You, you know, you know, what I think things that I don't necessarily believe, right. I just, I can entertain contradictory thoughts. So maybe some of the horrible things, they are genuinely from Charlie, but that's not what he's then built into his belief system. These are just thoughts that he's had. So, yeah, yeah. it's important. It's important to be able to take those thoughts and just, you know, you, you think them and they're gone, you know, or, you know, they come back and then they're gone again, but they're not a part of who you necessarily are just because they cross your mind. Yeah. There's a therapeutic quality of, I think of going to that dark place within yourself, you know, and our brains mm-hmm. are pretty amazing places. We can think about a lot of different things or a lot of different scenarios. I think people feel guilty sometimes about thinking certain things. Now, that's kind of crazy. Yeah. I mean, we can't really control that all the time. What I think we can control is what we actually 
put into our philosophy about this life and how we treat others. Those are things that we're actually turning into actions and turning into habits. But I've had all kinds of terrifying thoughts that I don't think define me. They're just passing sure. thoughts. And if I and if I hate if I hate that part about myself, then I'm just denying something that's real. And it becomes then it becomes mm. a neurosis. <laughs> then it becomes dangerous sure. because I'm denying it. But if I just cap, yeah. cap, you know, catch catch it and release it, then it's out of the it's out of my system. I think from now on, whenever I have a bad thought, I'm going to chalk it up to time rabies. I think that's seems, a good idea. Yeah, there's a gigantic ant working backwards. <laughs> <laughs> so anybody stupid. who hasn't read the book is just like what yeah which i think is almost everyone listening everyone's like what the hell yeah is this book about so you say should we give some a little bit more of a linear i mean the i mean it's difficult to do but i mean if you'd like to attempt to i i would be happy to hear your uh you know you're trying to uh you know compile what happened in this book Okay. Yeah, I think I. Well, that thing is, it's gonna, it's not gonna do the book justice, but I think that I can sure. explain the general idea. So essentially, a film critic goes to do some research for a book that he's writing, one of the many books he's written on very, a very specific subject matter, and he ends up meeting yeah. an outsider artist, a filmmaker named Ingo, a ninety-year-old black man or middle-aged Swiss man, right? We don't, we don't yes. know. And he discovers that this Ingo character has made a three-month film that he worked on for 90 years. And he commits to watching this film. And he sits through it for all three months. And when the lights finally come up, Ingo has died. And now he takes it upon himself to make the world know about this famous – this book, this movie that will become famous. And mm -hmm. But in the process of getting it back to New York, it, it burns. And he's only been able to sit through it once. So he and he and it's gone forever. And so now the rest of the book is this quest, and this will lead into my next puzzle piece, kind of this Don Quixote quest to remember the movie frame for frame, so that he can not only mm -hmm. bring the movie back to the public's attention, but so that he can make himself famous, which I think is the real underlying drive of this character. And he he battles that as well of like what's what are his intentions. Sure. And that's in a nutshell without any of the insane tangents, the idea of the book. He's found this great piece of art, he's lost it, and now he's trying to get it back. But because memory is so unreliable, he never knows if he can, if, if something, if, if it's gone forever, maybe it's really gone. Because even if we know what it is, it's only from our perception. Right, and it's colored by our perception the whole time. Right. Which is beautiful, you know, kind of another little aside briefly, is that that's, that's the truth for all things. Because films, lock in right we, a movie won't change right if you well if you watch la dolce vita it's just as many frames as it was in 1960 as it is now and vice versa but it will change because you will have changed and you will look at it right. differently and you'll grow with it great films like great books change over time and they change because you change and they're about things that are malleable and, and complex and that through experience are colored differently so even a movie, even a film, which will lock in time, will lock in images, and you can't change them, they will still change. Yeah. It's profound. That part it's, of it's extremely profound. It is. Yeah. That's the exact word I was about to use. Oh, I stole. <laughs> I'm sorry. 
No, it's okay. So I have my puzzle piece, Don Quixote. By the way, there you go. Yeah, Don Quixote. (laughs) I I I will include it. But yeah, absolutely. Um. So yeah, I I got one last piece, and it's a book. It's I I actually have one book on my list here, and that is H. G. Wells' The Time Machine from before the turn of the century. And uh, this book, it does go. A million years into the future, and things have gotten so weird and so strange and so uh, just downright ridiculous. And I, I feel like that the way that things happen in the time machine also very much the, the future is just such a, a ridiculous notion of what the future could become, as well as going backwards to the past in that case. Uh, but this idea of what the future will be is just so out there because it can be within the realm of a book and imagination and all that stuff. One that's yeah. One of the things that really kept, it was interesting to me is that the theory that Kaufman put forth in the book that the future is written, that the future, mm-hmm. there is a inevit- inevitability to what is going to happen. And that is something that I don't necessarily believe personally. Uh, but I thought mm-hmm. that was an interesting thing to submit uh, that like this is concrete, that there's no way to stop it. Even the even the doctor character that is able to predict the future can only predict himself predicting it. He cannot alter right. the things that he does. And that again, that kind of thing goes, you know, you can extrapolate out to like, you know, what is our free will? Are are we just kind of following our neuro pathways? You know, what decisions are really ours? Those are things that we can also really. I think that's that's not, that's symbolized. That's that the symbol is the future for that idea that we live with now. You know what is really our, what is really what autonomy do we really have? Right. Because right. I don't think Kaufman actually thinks the future is written personally. I don't think he thinks that, but I think he's. Using I highly that, doubt it. I highly doubt it. But I think he's using that as a way for us to examine right this moment. You know what are we really choosing anything? Yeah, is it mm. you know are we kind of robotic in that sense that we're just leaning towards what we're already inclined to do i think it also just adds into the thing you brought up earlier about just like a kind of oh you want an answer for all this here's here's a ridiculous answer for it all yeah i think when that's again th- again this is us extrapolating but that's again something we do now I mean, not to mm-hmm. offend anybody, but that's a big part of religion, right? Which is like, we don't have the answers, so here's a story that will satisfy some of those questions and will bring people some sure. type of peace. You know, it brings a lot worse shit, but it also brings some peace yeah. to some people. <laughs> but it, it's all yeah. worth it for them to be able to sleep at night, right? That's that's my <laughs> personal belief. It's not, I'm kidding. Anyway, sure. so, um, <laughs> but yeah, so that's, I mean, that's, you know, fiction, uh, all great works of fiction, Bible included, provide answers to unanswerable questions. And I think one of the right. postmodern shifts, you know, what's, be, what's become known as the postmodern idea in literature and in film, is that characters cannot provide answers. They can, they can raise more questions than provide answers. And that's something that mm-hmm. I think has become more common. We, you know, we've left the romantic period where the good always triumph. And now we're in a postmodern world where things don't always add up, which is a little bit more truer to life. Right. Well, that was my last piece. Do you have any more pieces you want to bring up? So I have two quick ones that will actually shift into film and television. I'll just touch on them very quickly, which is the one film 
that I think that we can actually think that Kaufman really does admire and that B admires in the book is Jean-Luc Goddard's Weekend. He brings it up mm. several times as being a very important film to him. It's Jean-Luc Goddard being you know, the creator and one of the major figures in the French New Wave movement of the 1960s French cinema. And he made a film in the late 60s called Weekend, which was possibly his most cinematic film at the, up to that point. It's a great black comedy and completely absurdist. And I think that it, has a, it had, must have had a very, very deep impression on Kaufman as a filmmaker, as a writer. Mm -hmm. And I think that his references to that film in the book are probably the least ironic. Uh, I think he's just saying, this is a great film and it deeply touched me. And I, it, it, the B says that, right. and I think Kaufman is saying that. And then the last one, I'll end on a funny one, because I think it's very true, is Frasier. My favorite <laughs> television show after The Sopranos, because of the constant references to the main character having gone to Harvard. Uh, Frazier, <laughs> yeah. Frazier Crane will <laughs> use any opportunity he has to mention that he went to Harvard, and so does B. To us, the reader, yeah. not even to characters within the story. We always refer right. to yeah, yeah. Harvard, the place I went, and blah, blah, blah. So I think yeah. Frazier was an obvious influence. And I think that Kaufman probably watches Frazier constantly, like I do, and thinks it's the yeah. funniest show ever <laughs> written, and, 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 and purposely referenced it. This is the theory I'm putting forth. That's a great piece to close this thing out with. I love it. <laughs> so I'm going to attempt to do a finished puzzle. I have been writing all these down as we've gone. Uh, I may miss something here and there, but uh, we brought up... Kurt Vonnegut's books, including Harrison Bergeron, Slaughterhouse-Five, Breakfast of Champions, The Edge, Get a Life, Woody Allen's Without Feathers, Being John Malkovich, Infinite Jest, Adaptation, uh, Finnegan's Wake, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Remembrance of Things Past, Synecdoche, New York, Kafka, uh, including The Castle, The Metamorphosis, and The Trial, Anomalisa, uh, Dostoevsky, including Notes from Underground and The Double, uh, The Critic, uh, Com Portnoy's Complaint, uh, A Hundred Years of Solitude, Devs, Journey to the End of the Night, Don Quixote, The Time Machine, Weekend, and of course, Frasier. <laughs> I got it all in there. A couple of mispronunciations along the way. No, uh, okay, good, 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 good. So, uh, yeah, th this is, this is quite a list. Obviously, um, this is going to be a weird episode for me personally, as someone who's not really a reader. I honestly, I, if I've read 20 books in my lifetime, that's a lot. Uh, but wow. I, I'm very happy to be able to do this episode anyway. And I, who knows, maybe I'll read one or two of those that you brought up along the way. Hopefully. Yeah, I'm you should, sorry. you I really should. I mean, the thing is, I understand. Yeah. I mean, all kidding aside, you know, it's, it, some of these books, they really are hard. And it's like, you know, it's like I, I always tell people, you know, don't watch Sallow or 120 Days of Sodom unless you're a real movie person. You know, then you have to mm -hmm. see it. But if you're not, then don't waste your time. <laughs> if you're a writer, right. then you should read you know, Dostoevsky and, and Celine and, you know, and James Joyce. And these are, but, but for the modern world, it's a hard, those are dedication. You have to really sit down. You have to really dedicate yeah. time. And so I understand. I give you a hard time, but I also understand. But I do think that they are 
good things to do and good things to read and for everybody. Most of those books are not just for for the for the book nerds or the movie buffs. You know, I think everyone can grow from learning and reading from those books and they were very influential in my life at a young at a young point in my life and then going back and reading them again. And they they're just they have an, a profound effect on me and they make me think about things that I wouldn't ordinarily think about. And so I recommend them to anyone who wants to read them. Question for you as a big reader. Uh, does Ant Kind, for all its success and not as much success, does it make you want another Charlie Kaufman novel? Um, no, not particularly. If he read, if he wrote another one, I would read it. Um, but mm. I, I read, I read the book fairly quickly. I read the book in about four days, all, all total, and mm-hmm. um, it was a it was a big bite. You know, I and when it was over, well, here's the thing. I was absorbed in it. So I really, when I wasn't reading it, I wanted to go read it. Like it really yeah. captured my attention and my imagination. I felt like I lived in that really weird world for those four or five days while reading it. And that was something I was really impressed with. But when it, but like I said earlier, when it was over, I closed it and I haven't really thought about it since. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm not, I'm not hungry for another book. I'm not, you know, it's not like I can't count, I'm not counting the days, but I think that he has definitely a lot of potential to write an even better book. And I will read it when that comes out. Cause I think he'll do it again. I think he will write it. I think his appetite is now, uh, you know, wet motivated. Yeah. All right. So yeah, no, I mean, yes and no. Yeah. How about you? You want want to read another one? I I'm I'm always hungry for more Charlie Kaufman content. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, in in making my list and like just kind of going back and thinking about his previous films, just the thought came to me again that if you don't count Anomalisa, because that's not something he really planned to make a film, you know, other mm-hmm. people came to him and kind of made it. He hasn't gotten to make a movie since 2008. Right. Like that is, it's just absolutely a shame. And, you know, of course next month, uh, we're finally going to get a new Charlie Kaufman movie. I'm thinking of ending things, which is coming to Netflix, which I hate that I'm not going to get to see it in a the theater, but it is what it is. And, right. uh, you know, maybe, maybe you'll come back for that episode, Chris. Uh, I'd love to. I, yeah. I know you I mean, I'm a, Kaufman I'm Sine- like I do. Oh yeah. Synecdoche is the best film of the century. I think. Yeah. I, I'd say it's certainly up there. It's it's incredible. Yeah, it's a great film. It's a film that will grow in stature and it will find its audience over time. I think and the, the issue with yeah. the the only issue with Synecdoche is not its complexity. It's 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 sadness. The film is mm-hmm. a sad film, and so it's very challenging to I think bypass that. The complexity is fun. You know, I think the average audience member would would go on that ride. The hard part to digest is the is the somberness of it. And so I think sure. it, it's like Igmar Bergman, you know, you have to kind of be in the right headspace, the right time in your life to get into Bergman. And then once you get in, then it's like, Oh my God, this is, you know, it kind of, it's, it has the catharsis of a really beautiful, sad song, but it's also yeah. hard work. So I think Synecdoche will find its, find its time and it will be remembered fondly because it's a great film. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Uh, so Chris, is there a movie you've watched recently you'd like to recommend to our listeners? Oh, man. Um, does it have to be a new one? No, not necessarily. Okay. I Because I, I haven't really watched many new films. Um, 
because of this quarantine, you know, I, I'm waiting for theaters to reopen like everybody. I miss it de- yeah. dearly. And I'm trying to stay up on stuff, but I'm, I'm actually working on my own film, which I'll plug here in a moment. But I would say that on the newer films, a couple of years ago, I watched a film called uh, Diamantino. And that is one that I'd recommend. It's a hilarious, strange, uh, kind of a surrealist film. And uh, it, it wasn't, it, it didn't like blow my hair back, but I really, I kept kind of thinking about it. And there's some really great moments in there. So I checked that one out. And then I recently, just last night, uh, I watched one of my favorite films. I wanted to return to it, uh, speaking of somber things, a movie called Damnation by the great Hungarian film director, Bella Tarr. And Bellatar is one of those directors that's like a, it's kind of like a, a director's director. You know, he's one of those, you know, even Roger Ebert, you know, it, like his films eluded Ebert for years. And then he finally got a chance mm. to like go back and see him. So not everybody's seen his films and they are definitely worth your time. They are somber and beautiful and artistic, but, but just undisputably outstanding. And Damnation's one of the shorter ones. It's an easier watch than some of his other kind of like, he made a movie called Satan Tango that's like seven and a half hours long, and I love it. I've watched it three times. So, like, I'm a, I'm a freak. But watch Damnation. It's a little bit easier to digest, and it's a great introduction to his films, and you will be hooked. It's like – it's imagine, like, Igmar Bergman and David Lynch made a movie together, and that's kind of what you're dealing with with uh, Bella Tarr, one of our great modern directors. So, Perfect. Well, Chris, uh, thank you, as always, for being here. Why don't you tell people about this film you've been working on? Okay, I will. Thank you for asking. So the movie is called uh, Bizarro e Fantastico. It's an Italian film. Bizarre and fantastic for you guys not knowing the translation. I I don't know if you I was wondering about that. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I I know. It's tough. Thanks. But um, (laughs) the title is is in Italian because the film is in Italian Uh, earlier Last or last year, around October, I was in Rome and Paris, and I shot a film on location there uh, with some fantastic actors in, in both cities. And we've been editing it ever since. And of course, COVID kind of shut us down a little bit. But the film is in uh, two languages, <laughs> neither of them I speak. So that was an interesting <laughs> challenge. Uh, translators and all those things. Uh, but I'm very proud of it. We're, we're the light is at the end of the tunnel, and we're almost finished. We're kind of doing some of the nitpicky edits right now and uh, we will be hitting the festival mark uh, festival circuit with it very aggressively when the film is completed and it's going to be available online of course for everyone to see so keep an eye out for it uh, there's i post often on my instagram updates about the film there's a facebook for the film as well imdb it's on there but uh, we're getting ready to release a trailer pretty soon and then we're going to wrap it up and get it out so bizarro e fantastico the dark comedy shot on location in Rome and Paris, and I'm excited to show, to show it to you guys. I'd like to think that B would uh, unsarcastically love it. already <laughs> fantastic. Well, you know, you never know. I mean, he, I don't know if that's a compliment or not, because he really loves Wes Anderson right. and Judd Apatow. So, <laughs> um, so no, no, I, I honestly, if, uh, you know, it, it's a labor of love, you know, I'm, I, I, a film I've plugged on here before is Madame X, which is the more larger scope feature film that we're trying to get developed uh, with the, the wonderful Doug Milsom cinematographer of Full Metal Jacket and the support of Mrs. Kubrick, uh, giving her original paintings that were in Stanley Kubrick's films that she's giving them to the production. So uh, some of the things I've been preoccupying myself with is trying to get financing for Madame X. And that's part of the reason I was in Italy. Mm-hmm. 
And so, and I thought, you know, I'm just going to make something and get something fresh and new out there into the world. So the movie is very much a labor of love. It was made on a shoestring budget. Uh, it was, it's a, it's an ode to many of the films uh, that I love, the Italian cinema of the '60s, and and Kubrick himself, of course, he often makes an appearance in my films, as David well knows. Um, sure. But uh, so it's, um, I, I hope everybody likes it. Of course, you always want your stuff to be, you know, enjoyed. Uh, but you know, who who knows? But it's, I want to give you guys something that I'm very passionate about and hand it over to my audience and and hopefully they enjoy it. Be be included. <laughs> well, uh, I'm looking forward to it and I'm glad to finally get you back on the show and I'm looking forward to the next time we can uh, do this again sometime or maybe even see each other in person. Maybe go grab some coffee with that. That'd be good, right? Something. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I, I miss being on the show. I've always felt it was a, a great privilege that you have me on here to co-host and I really appreciate it. I hope people enjoy it. Um, and I hope people listen to this episode, even though it's about books. So we'll see. <laughs> I hope so too. It'll be interesting to see how it goes over. So no, I'm we, sure we will, will find out soon. Right. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. I'll be back soon. Hey, I'm Josh Bell. I'm Jason Harris. Hey, Josh, we're friends in real life, but we're also co-hosts on this new podcast called Awesome Movie Year, where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies and do a deep dive looking at movies, including the best picture winner, the biggest movie at the box office, future cult classics, and more. Including the biggest flop. And this season, we're doing 1994. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. That could be Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. We're all over the web as well. Got Awesome Movie Year on all the socials and awesome moviyear.com so please like us subscribe and uh if you do like us give us a five-star rating because we love you all right so i hope you enjoyed that conversation about ant kind with chris cranock uh go seek out that book if you're a fan of all things strange and weird and funny and charlie kaufman and film buff jokes and maybe the critic i i still really like that puzzle piece using the critic as a puzzle piece if you like the critic i think you're gonna find stuff you like in this book even though it goes so far in so many weird directions maybe you won't be able to catch up with everything going on in it but uh i don't know i enjoyed it even though it took all of my july from me i <laughs> really enjoyed reading it and i enjoyed talking about it with chris so, as always, I want to remind you to make sure you are subscribed to Piecing It Together wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. You can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or on Podchaser. And you can follow us on social media at PiecingPod. Join the Facebook group Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces, where we continue the conversation about all the movies we talk about on the show. And a little quick plug for our Patreon where we have advanced episodes of uh, this podcast, as well as bonus episodes that are coming soon for it, and bonus and advanced episodes for Awesome Movie Year, which just started its fifth season on the films of 1977. You should go check that out. But they have a couple of extra bonus special episodes on the Patreon. And also All Rice, No Beans, which unfortunately is going to go on another hiatus because of this whole coronavirus situation, which it sucks, but it is what it is, and we will get that show going again soon. But there is some bonus content that's going to be hitting the Patreon soon. So at least we got that to hold you over, and hopefully we'll be back to recording more episodes in no time. And uh, also my music is on the Patreon. I got bonus exclusive music on there. And speaking of my music, at the time that this is going to go up, 
my new website is now available. I always play my music at the end of every episode, and I don't know how many of you listening take that as a cue to go check out what I've done. I have all these albums of music and music videos that I've produced for these tracks from the albums, and I've, of course, scored a lot of films as well. If you want to know more about my music composing career, uh, my website is completely redesigned. I just launched it on August 1st. And the website is bydavidrosen.com. That's B as in boy, Y as in yes, David Rosen, spelled exactly the way my name is spelled, bydavidrosen.com. And I completely ground up, redesigned the site, and I'm really happy with it. I'm really proud of all the work I put into it. And I uh, am excited to be able to put a renewed focus on my website with the blog and really be able to take it into the next phase of my music composing career, including my next album, which will be coming in October. And I'll be posting more news about that really soon on that new website. So check out bydavidrosen.com. And why don't I close this out with a piece of my music? I guess I should give you a preview of something from said new album. That would be nice, right? What track should I play for you guys today? I'm going to play a weird one to go along with this book. I'm trying to see if any of them are finished yet, the more weird tracks from this thing. Um, I think I'm going to go with a track called The Night Calls. I really love this track. I, I'm not sure if it's 100% done. It's like 90% done, maybe 95% done. I'm still finishing up this album. I'm going to be working a lot on it over the next couple of months, getting these songs 100% perfect. But this track, The Night Calls, I just think, I, I love this thing. I'm very excited for people to hear it. You're the first people who are going to hear it, other than my fiance Gina. She's heard it, but otherwise, it's just been me. So enjoy this. It's called The Night Calls. It's going to be track two on my next album, which... I'm not going to tell you the name of yet, although you can find it in a blog post over on my new website. But uh, new music coming soon, including this one, The Night Calls.
an All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.